This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. You're listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update podcast. I am your host, Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. For more information, please visit the website for the American Council of the Blind at acb.org. Today, we have a very special conversation for you with Dr. Jill Hemsker, the Deputy Director for the National Institute on Bioimaging and Bioengineering, which is within the National Institutes on Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And this conversation was held live as part of the ACB conference and convention taking place in person in Omaha, Nebraska, as well as virtually over the ACB media network our social media channels, and on Zoom. So without further ado, let's jump right into this panel about the work and the advocacy efforts that have been done related to accessible at-home COVID-19 testing, along with Dr. Jill Hemsker, ACB President Dan Spoon, and ACB Immediate Past President Kim Charlson. Thank you, Maria, uh, for being our host today, and welcome to our presentation on accessible home testing kits. And more specifically, we're going to hear today from Dr. Jill Hemsker, who is uh, the deputy director of, and I'll, I'll have her explain what NIBIB stands for, because uh, it's quite a, uh, a scientific mouthful, but uh, let's uh, really be clear uh, that uh, Dr. Jill, as I call her, has really been an outstanding advocate for us as we've gotten started in having the conversation with NIBIB on the RADx program and the development of accessible home test kits uh, for those of us uh, who are blind or have low vision. And so um, we also have on our panel today, Clark Rockful our ACB Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs from Alexandria, Virginia, and Kim Charlson, immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind from Watertown, Massachusetts. So welcome, Clark. Welcome, Kim. Kim, can we hear you on Zoom? Are you there? Yes, I am here, Dan. Thank you. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. <laughs> and I'll pass the mic over so, so Clark can say hello. Thank you so much, Dan. And hello, everyone. Uh, just ask folks for their patience because Dan and I are sharing a mic here in the room. We like to be cozy and close to one another. We're both vaccinated and boosted, so no need to worry there. <laughs> and if anyone listening on ACB Media has questions throughout this presentation, please email them to advocacy at acb.org. That's A-D-V-O-C-A-C-Y at acb.org. And when, if, and when we have time for audience Q and A, I will, I will be the one pulling those questions up. Otherwise we'll share those questions with Dan Kim and uh, Dr. Jill Himsker for answering after the session. Thank you, Dan. 
Thank you. And I'll, uh, uh, um, uh, Dr. Hipsker, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thank you, Dan. Um, I'm Jill Heemskirk. I'm the Deputy Director of the National Institute for Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, which, as Dan points out, is quite a mouthful. Um, we like to think of ourselves simply as the Engineering Institute at NIH. Um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is made up of 27 different institutes and centers. Tony Fauci famously leads the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. Um, our much smaller institute is focused on engine, bringing engineering to biomedical problems. And so we don't have a particular disease focus where um, sort of the interface between engineering and medical research. Um, I, I wanted to uh, start my remarks today um, by really thanking the ACB, um, not just for inviting me here today, but for the really important role that, that you all have played in stimulating and supporting the accessible test program that I'm going to be um, speaking about. I, I just um, can't tell you how energized we all are to have taken this on as a mission and are so grateful to your organization and the others who took the time to point out what we were missing, which is that it was great that the government is providing free home tests to the country, but there are many people in the country who can't use those tests independently uh, with privacy. Um, and it's about time we did something about that. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our program, what we've done for testing in the country so far and then tell you about what we're doing to bring more accessible tests to the country. Um, so RADx, which stands for Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, is a program that started in April of 2020, just after the pandemic hit, um, when, as you'll recall, the country really didn't have many COVID tests and getting a COVID test was extraordinarily difficult. Um, so Congress um, decided in April of 2020 to um, give us a large amount of money, $500 million, which was more than double our normal appropriation for our institute. Um, to start developing COVID tests so that they would be available in the country and not just lab tests, but point of care tests and home tests so that they would be easily available to everybody. The reason Congress targeted us was that we had an ongoing program in point of care and home test development that had been going on at NIBIB since 2007. And so what this money did was allow us to greatly expand that program and um, focus on the, the COVID pandemic. We, the network that we have that was doing this work consisted of four 
academic centers and a coordinating center called CIMIT at Mass, Mass General Hospital. Um, what we did with the additional money was establish new resources, new core resources that could really accelerate the development of tests for COVID because we were on a, a very tight timeline of wanting to get tests out as early as the fall of 2020. So we set up core resources to validate COVID tests in the laboratory with clinical samples. We set up a clinical core to conduct the studies that were needed to get um, FDA authorization. And we set up a truly unique resource at NIH, really unique across the government, um, called the Deployment Core at CIMIT. And that deployment core is sort of the, the key to, to our success. They, it is a, a center of expertise that has a broad range of expertise across the pipeline of test development in not only technology development, but clinical work, regulatory work to, to make sure that the data is up to snuff for the FDA and importantly, commercialization expertise to help companies do their, um, set up their manufacturing, scale up their manufacturing, and, and actually get products out to the market. So that really the uniqueness of this program in part is that we are going beyond simply providing funding to companies to develop tests. We're working with the companies at every step of the way to help them overcome any issues like supply chain issues, communication with the FDA, et cetera, um, so that we could get all the roadblocks out of the way and get this done as quickly as possible. And it's been phenomenally successful. Um, we've managed to shrink what is normally a six-year development process from idea to marketplace down to as little as six months. So the, the way we work is that um, we put out a call for technology solutions and um, we got 824 different applications within a matter of weeks. We then um, set up a funnel where our experts work closely with the people submitting applications, talking to them, really understanding the technology and evaluating its promise for moving quickly to market. Those that made it through that stage that we called the shark tank, then moved on to a stage of validation and risk review. And the ones that made it successfully through that phase where it looked like the product had a pretty good chance of being successful, we moved into a manufacturing phase where we provided them contracts to build manufacturing lines and scale up their products and get them all the way out to the market. Through this, through this process of, of very closely working with the companies we were able to um, bring, bring not only bring many, many more tests to the country, but you'll, you'll notice that most of the tests being done now are not laboratory tests anymore. They're, they're in the doctor's office at the point of care, and they're in the home. We 
the program have delivered 2.6 billion tests to the country as of April. And this is the largest number of tests that have been produced by any country in the world. We have, um, we're still going strong. The companies we supported are producing 11 million tests per day. Um, And we were able to get 44 different tests to the stage of um, emergency use authorization with the FDA, which is the uh, clearance that the FDA needs to allow a test to be sold on the marketplace. Of those 44, 10 are actually over-the-counter home tests. And we've worked with over 100 companies in this, in throughout the last two years um, to get to the place we are now. But there are a number of challenges remaining, and we still have about another year of funding left. Excuse my dog barking in the background. Um, the, the, the obvious key challenge for today is to increase test accessibility, to, to make modified and next-generation home tests that can be used independently by more people. We also would like to see improved performance of tests. The tests on the market now are not as sensitive as we would like to see, and we envision a next generation of testing where the results you get at home are as reliable as the ones that you get from a lab-based test. And so we're working on um, developing tests that have a much higher performance than what we have now through new technologies. We also would like to reduce the cost and there are, we've identified innovations in manufacturing and packaging and distribution um, that can drive the cost down significantly. And we'd like to see something under $5 a test retail. Um, We also envision test to treat networks where the results of at-home tests and the digital reporting of those results can be linked to a telemedicine infrastructure where treatments for COVID can be immediately delivered to people's homes so that they can get diagnosed and treated without ever leaving their home. So um, this, this is the platform that we were on when we heard from the ACB and other groups that more accessible tests were needed. And so the first thing that RADx did was to hold an accessibility listening session at the end of March um, this year so so that we could hear and understand what the problems were. And I, I just cannot describe to you how revealing this was for me and for the other, um, the other uh, people running and working within RADx. We had uh, representatives from seven different advocacy organizations, including ACB. And we had representatives also from six federal agency partners who have as part of their mission space, um, accessibility in general, including the CDC, FDA, um, the National Council on Disabilities, the ACL and the US Access Board. So um, 
in that listening session, we had we had three breakout groups. We had a blind and low vision group, a fine motor impairment group, and a group for older adults to understand the challenges to each of these groups. And today, of course, we'll, we'll focus on what we learned and what we're doing for the blind and low vision um, population. We talked about not only the challenges, but some potential improvements. And most importantly from this meeting, we wanted to open lines of communication between the RADx program, the advocacy groups, and our partner federal agencies for sort of an ongoing working partnership. And that, I think, is going tremendously well. I look forward to hearing um, from the ACB leadership on their view about that. Um, but we're meeting quite regularly, and we've had tremendous advice um, from our advocacy partners on what the needs are and how they might be addressed. So the, the listening session identified problems in three main areas, the test packaging and instructions, the procedure of the test itself, and interpreting the results. The test packaging, actually the instructions turn out to be with our now ongoing review of, of, of tests turn out to be responsible, responsible for about two thirds of the problems that need to be addressed. The, and, and everyone who's taken a COVID test recognizes these without me even having to say anything, but the, the, the newsprint type instructions with tiny little print and many, many steps and no language options, no braille, sometimes not even a simple step-by-step -step demonstration of the test are extremely challenging. The boxes themselves are difficult to open and there's no scannable identifier on the box to tell you what you just received in an envelope in the mail or to help you access instructions that are specific for the test that you just received. The uh, procedures are typically far too many steps. They involve counting drops of liquid into a tiny little hole on the device. Um, the parts are tiny and sometimes have to be hooked up in ways that require a lot of, of effort and, and understanding. And there's a lot of instruction about not touching things, which is not helpful if you have blindness or low vision, of course. Um, similarly, things, instructions that tell you to use the top hole or put the colored side down on the table. These, these just, just are not helpful. I, I'm speaking to the far more knowledgeable than me, but I, it was just such a revealing discussion. And I'm so very grateful for that. Um, as far as interpreting the results, and this is really most key for people with blindness, we heard, um, that if you have a, a simple antigen test the, the, that is positive or negative because of the appearance of some little bands on a strip or in a little window on the device, that's, that's just not useful. And even though some of these tests actually can be read by a smartphone and are therefore more accessible, um, we learned that as many as 40% of people in these groups do not have um, access to smartphones. 
So there's a lot of work to be done and we're excited to be embarking on that. We've now set up a RADx accessibility pipeline that is um, in which we've engaged a number of contractors to help us evaluate the accessibility of tests, design solutions to the accessibility challenges, and to bring in experts to um, evaluate whether those solutions are the right ones. And through this, through this pipeline that we've established, it's a very sort of high touch process with lots of user involvement. We've started with, we selected 24 tests for evaluation. Of those tests, 12 appear to be most amenable to modification. And we now have a process established where those tests will be the subject of design efforts, including designers who are themselves blind or, or have low vision. Um, then those designs will be reviewed by, um, by additional experts who will weigh in and give feedback on those designs. And then at each step of this process, there is a uh, user feedback step put in there where we, we give the tests. If, if the modification is meant to help people with blindness, we will give them to people with blindness and ask them, did we, hit, did we get it right? Um, and already, as we're in this process, we're sometimes hearing, no, that's not quite it. So we've got iterations in the process where we start with a, a preliminary prototype, get, get feedback on that, go back to the design stage, develop a more advanced prototype, get feedback at that, on that. Um, we're not. We're not. We're hoping to get to that sort of stage uh, later in the summer, and then um, once we've had a couple of rounds of this, we hope to start production of redesign tests um, later this fall. And where we are, we're sort of intermediate in the process. We have not evaluated all the tests yet. They're all at different stages of evaluation and design, um, but, but some, some good things are already happening. One thing that I'm really happy about is that the companies we're speaking to are very enthusiastic about this process. They want to make more accessible tests and they are eager because many of them already have new tests in the pipeline. They wanna get our guidance and, and learn what we know as quickly as possible so that it can feed into their new efforts. The other group who's very enthusiastic about this, fortunately, is the FDA. And the FDA is going to need to be involved in all of the modifications, even something as apparently simple as modifying the instructions. The FDA has to be certain and has to have data that demonstrates that if you change the instructions, it doesn't change how that, that the test can still be run successfully. Because the instructions are sort of a unique area and don't, don't really require changes to manufacturing, this is an area that needs a lot of improvement, but can happen rather quickly. And we're thinking a timeline of about three months, including the time for the FDA 
to um, approve the changes to the instructions. And we've sort of butted off a separate funnel for um, improving the test instructions. And we're starting by um, taking a, a sort of template approach that we hope can apply to most of the tests that are on the market now. So that if we um, develop accessible instructions, all companies, whether they're in the program or not, can use that guidance to make um, better, more accessible instructions. And we're also working on um, QR codes that are identifiable in position on the box so that they can link immediately to these improved instructions um, electronically. Um, and, and as I said, we're hoping that we can um, have this impact the accessibility of tests within a few months. In the longer term, we recognize that ideally tests should be designed from the ground up with accessibility in mind. And we're going to be launching a new effort, as I said, for next generation tests, and we're building accessibility into that effort so that one of the, one of the requirements and one of the things that the prospective tests will be ranked on is how accessible will the final design be. And with all of the learning that we're doing and with all of the help that we're getting from the ACB and other organizations, we hope to be able to be in a good position to not only guide the manufacturers in making tests more accessible, but also to develop kind of a best practices approach that can serve as a guide for accessibility to the home diagnostics industry more broadly. We're hoping that this effort that, that we've started with your encouragement will benefit not only the development of COVID home tests, but all of, all, all of the home tests that are being developed for diabetes, pregnancy, flu, HIV. It's, it's really clear to us that um, with, with kind of guidance like this that, that we can publicize and put out there in partnership with our federal agencies, um, hopefully this more accessible approach will apply to much more than just the COVID tests that will be coming to market. And of course, um, we, we will be working um, on these new universal designs. And we're also excited that it's not, it's not just the, the blindness community and the disability community. Everybody struggles with these tests. Everybody has problems with them. They're confusing, they're difficult, they're clumsy, they're not very sensitive. Um, and so we believe that this effort will have a broad impact on on everybody who's using these tests. And that's, I, that's really the, the fundamental value of, of the universal design approach. Um, so I think um, that is pretty much what I had to say today as my introduction. I hope I haven't gone on too long. I'm just very excited about this, um, but I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Dan. Thank you, Dr. Himsker. And at, uh, I just have to share that I had the opportunity to, to meet uh, Dr. Himsker for the first time in March when we had the listening session. And again, as she said, there were many um, 
members of the disability community involved, including several from the blind uh, blindness field. And it was very refreshing. Uh, Dr. Jill kind of started the presentation that day and walked us through, you know, the steps to do a a antigen home test kit. Um, And at the end of that demonstration, I, I asked her just a very simple question. Could you have done this with if you were blind? And she said, I tried it with my eyes closed and there was no way it was she she got it day one. <laughs> and her boss, Bruce Tromberg, who is the director of NIBIB, came on that day and spoke for 20 minutes at the end of our listening session and really laid out the long term vision for where we need to get to with antigen home test kits of all types of different varieties. So first, I want to let everybody know, uh, you know, within the American Council of the Blind, the participation that we had from our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rackfold, who was part of those listening sessions, Kim Charlson, our immediate past president from Watertown, Massachusetts, uh, Jeff Tom, ACB Board of Director and President of the Association, or the Alliance on Aging with Vision Loss. He actually didn't attend the blind and low vision group, but attended the the, uh, older blind, older adult group. And really, it was so interesting to see the number of similarities across the three groups of challenges, whether you had fine motor skill issues, you were aging, or you were blind or had low vision. Many of us had many of the similar difficulties with uh, taking the tests. And also Claire Stanley, our previous director of uh, advocacy specialist with the American Council of Blind that now works for the National Disability Rights Network. So ACB was very represented on that call. And it was a really, it was just refreshing to me to see the dialogue that took place, the questions that were answered. And what made us really feel good was not only the questions, but then each team came back and summarized their findings at the end of the session. And we could all hear that they got it. They really understood the issues. And then Dr. Tromberg came on and talked about the vision of where uh, NIBIB wants to take this through the RADx program over the next year. And now they're coming through as we're seeing with quick results three months later. So, uh, from that, we're very, very thankful. Uh, I was hoping, uh, Dr. Hemskirt, you could talk a little bit more, uh, you did towards the end, but what Dr. Tromberg kind of brought forth that he really sees this happening at three different levels, the short term, the intermediate term, and the long term, and what those different barriers are that keep you, you know, that kind of limit you of what you can do in the short run versus the intermediate level where you're actually changing the product a little. And then at the final level where you're really redesigning a new solution for antigen home tests. So, so yes, that's, that's the little, little dose of reality that we've all been getting for the past two years is, is how long it really takes to come up with a new, marketed product from the Blackboard stage. Um, every, 
every little change we make. So, so the, the, the immediate short term, the fastest short term, I think, is the change to the instructions for use and simplifying and clarifying those and, and making them, making vision not be a, a, a requirement for being able to follow them. Um, the, the intermediate stage of modifying existing tests is a shortcut in a sense um, because all of the clinical testing and the, the technical development's been done, but, but every change you make that requires a change to the manufacturing line means you're adding probably six months because you have to stop, change your dyes, change your molds. Even I, I learned just today, um, the idea of putting a QR code on the box sounds so that so that instructions can be readily um, re retrieved electronically. Um, if there's no way to know where that QR code is, it's not very useful. <laughs> so there needs to be some 3D element to it, or a Braille indicator, or it, we're, we're talking about the technology that is of the sort where you tap your credit card on the little reader. It doesn't matter exactly where you are. Um, the information flows through. So we're, we're thinking about things like this, but, but that will require a change to the packaging, which will require a change on the manufacturing line and introduce some months once it's designed and agreed upon. And then in the longer term, um, the, the idea of a completely new technology, a completely new test. Um, our experience um, with, the, with the COVID program to date, uh, the, the, the earliest test we, we were able to get to market took six months. And that was not the majority of the tests. Um, in fact, uh, Illum got to the market quite quickly. Um, they were um, the first FDA authorization for a home test was Illum. And that reminds me to tell you, I, I, I forgot to mention, um, Illum is not perfectly accessible, but it's more accessible because it has a reader that communicates with your cell phone. And so the result from that test can be um, interpreted in a way that people with blindness can receive. Um, the government is now making those available through the free test program. I know it's on the ACB website, but I wanted to put in an extra plug as a government employee. Um, if you go to the um, covidtest.gov site and go to the ordering page where you order tests, if you scroll down a bit, it says if you are, are uh, a person with blindness or low vision, go to this link. And that takes you to an ordering site for the Illum test, which comes with a reader. Um, but, but yeah, the brand new tests, the higher performance tests um, that, that are built from the ground up with the universal design, that could take a year or two. And it's just, that was our experience rushing as quickly as we could, getting rid of as many obstacles as we could. It's just the reality of, of the manufacturing world. 
Thank Dan, you. And this, now I'll this see might if be Kim a, could ask a question. Yes, go ahead, Kim. Yeah, this might be a good time for me to interject a little bit um, about the um, the Alum test. But before I do that, I just wanted to follow up what Dr. Jill said about the COVIDtests.gov site. That website is very, very accessible, really easy to use with a screen reader. I have to commend them for really setting it up, making it simple. But if you're not comfortable ordering online, there is um, a toll-free number you can call at 1-800-232-0233. And you can order um, the tests through that process. And um, that's that's been very successful for people. Um, so um, what I wanted to talk a little bit about with all of you today was just to give you a, a kind of a glimpse into um, the Alum test. I ordered the Alum test for blind and low vision when the announcement was made um, just last week, I think actually, or couple, maybe two weeks ago, but not not that long ago. And I, I did get the tests, um, I think it was on Friday of last week. So probably people who are at the convention may have tests if they've ordered them waiting when they get home. But I thought it would be interesting to just give you sort of a, an overview of my experience and the testing that what I did. So um, as Dr. Jill mentioned, the, um, there is an app and you do need to use a smartphone to successfully um, conduct the test, the Illum test. So the first step is to install, uh, to download and install the app. And there is an iOS or an Android version. Um, so I was using an iOS iPhone version and um, the app asked me to authorize purchase um, to go ahead because um, so authorized purchase of the app, it is a free app. So you just go ahead and say, okay, and there's no charge or anything like that. That's just a step in the process. So once you've downloaded and installed the app, then um, from the main menu of the app, you can flick um, to, to read the first screen, you know, to continuously read or flick through and it will tell you that, that, that it's a three-step process. And at the bottom of the screen, there's, um, there's a take a new test button. So, so, so far, so good. I, I could do all those things. Um, then there's a screen that says the app will need to use Bluetooth to interact with your test. And you click the continue button. And then you're prompted to allow your device to interact or to connect with your Bluetooth on your phone. And you select okay for that. And then you have to choose um, that you will allow the device to, to send notifications from the app. So we, that happens on most apps on, on, um, that you use. Then you're asked to um, allow or not tracking by zip code. Um, and that's for research purposes. And then, um, once you've done that, there's options to allow it once, to allow it while using the app, allow it all the time, or don't allow. And again, that's sharing basically geographic demographic information on where test taking is happening for um, research purposes. Then you proceed through that information about the test. You read about 
the test and what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, and that results will be collected and shared if you've allowed it with relevant healthcare authorities um, and your personal data is, is not shared unless you've specifically indicated you wanted it shared with, with a physician or a medical facility. So you agree and then you end up um, with terms and conditions and privacy policies and things like that with most apps. And you look at all that. And then at the end, there's, um, there's an, uh, uh, an X button down at the bottom that says, I agree. So once you get through those things, then it's time to provide your patient details. So, um, and I assume, you know, the next time I use one of these tests, that'll all be in the app. So this is a setup process. So it really isn't as cumbersome as it may sound, but um, the next step is to put in your name, your first name, your last name, your date of birth, um, and the date of birth is a picker item. So you can choose, you know, January, and then you choose the 13th, and then you choose your year on the picker list. And then it also wants your cell phone number because that's important for communicating with your iPhone or your Android phone. And then some um, other required fields that you need to fill in would include your email because your test results can be sent to you or shared with your doctor or employer, you'll have them so you can share them um, by providing your email. And there's, then there's a continue button. Um, it also asks for your address, um, your age, and there's a, a, a short list of different um, kind of categories. And the one that I needed to check was that I was over the age of 13 so that I could continue um, to watch the informational video that was part of the process. And I, and I did that. Then I got to the start the test part, which is good. Um, so again, this is, you know, flicking on your screen, checking and tapping on okay or continue. So there are um, the box, the test itself physically is bigger than the first round of tests that came from the government that were you know, the totally not accessible for us tests that were pretty small. This box is about maybe four inches by five inches and about three inches thick because it has more items inside. And you'll hear about those um, as I tell you a little bit about the process itself. So the important part of the package, well, the, at least the first step, is the what, what they call the analyzer. And um, the the um, the analyzer um, is a device that connects to your phone using Bluetooth. So this part was a little tricky because um, there's a button on the analyzer and you need to press that button um, to turn it on. And it has a flashing, slowly flashing blue light that indicates that it's kind of, it's waiting to pair, um, which a lot of devices have a flashing blue light with Bluetooth. Um, to get it to pair, you need to hold down the button and, and the directions say um, until the device, um, till the light is solid. So that didn't work so well for me, but we did time it. Um, and it, it took about three to four seconds of holding the button down for the light um, to, to not be flashing quickly. 
And so it paired. Um, there's no audio indication or anything when it paired. So, you know, what we used and we is uh, Brian and I, so my husband, um, and we used just the time, the estimated time, and then flicked um, forward to hear the the word connected. So it does indicate on the screen with, with voiceover that you have connected the test. And then you proceed with the next button. And the next item in the test is the vial um, with the fluid in it. Um, and you twist and remove the smaller tab on that vial. And you, um, you pour the fluid from the vial into the dropper bottle, which is another item inside the box. And click the next button. So that's all pretty doable. Now we get to the swab portion of the test. So you um, unwrap the swab and you remove, there's a kind of a rubbery child protector um, ring around the, um, the swab and you take that off. And it's very insistent in this part of the app that it says, follow the instructions and you click okay. Um, and then this is the part where you, you insert the swab into your nostril according to the instructions um, you know, three swipes around and then you change and do the other nostril um, and you hit the next button. And the next step in the test is to screw the swab into the dropper that you've been holding. So I think you need about six hands to do a test and keep things and not touch the parts you're not supposed to touch. But, um, you know, with, with a little experience, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's doable. Um, so again, trying not to touch any of the, the, the tip of the swab, you want to be really cognizant of that. And an interesting piece of instructions that didn't come until after we kind of done this is it says, do not shake your dropper because they don't want you to shake up the, the fluid. And we kind of shook it a little bit, but um, then you get the next button and then the done button. So the last step is to, open up the hinged cap on the dropper um, inverting in it. You're inverting the dropper and you place the exposed tip onto the analyzer port. That's a basically a kind of a hole on the port and you squeeze your dropper five times into that port. Then you flick on the app to the run the test button and you click and the app will start and it does have a countdown 15 minute timer, which you can read by flicking over to the place where it's, it's providing that information. So we were able to monitor the time. So it, it does not give you any kind of clue when the 15 minutes are up. So we basically set another timer for 16 minutes. So we would be sure that um, we had met the 15 minute timeline. And your results are displayed on the screen and you flick to find those results. And then below the results, you go farther down on the test and it you know, gives you an option to share your information with um, a healthcare provider. And that was the process. I think it was a little, you know, it was un unfamiliar, uncertain. Um, we did have some cited support to help us through it. 
but basically um, we did it ourselves. And if I had to do it again, you know, tomorrow, I would feel much more comfortable that the process is probably 90% accessible and doable independently. Um, Again, it's the instructions that are mostly the, you know, just trying to make sure your, your Bluetooth is connected um, that you don't shake things because the instructions came after you put the two together and the instinct is to shake it. So you don't want to do that, but overall it was doable and I have, you know, pretty detailed notes that I took through the whole process. So maybe if there's anybody I can share any of that with in more detail, Dr. Jill, you can share that with me and I'd be happy to communicate with any of the folks on the process. But overall, the, the Illum test is, is, I think, you know, more usable and potentially doable by someone who does not have any functional vision. And that's really amazing to me to know that NIH and NIBIB have actually been able to accomplish so much in sort, such a short period of time. Um, that's really a commendation because most people say, you know, it's going to take forever because the government's involved. But I have to say with, with your work at NIH and, and NIBIB, the, um, it's just been phenomenal to see the progress that you've made in really such a short period of time. Kim, this is Dan. And, and as you went through that and described it, where my thought was, it's like anything else related to orientation, right? The first time you do it, Exactly. It's really difficult. But if you were taking a test every day in a week or two, you'd be really good at it. Exactly. And I have a, a colleague at my work. I work at the Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown, Massachusetts. I'm not a teacher, so I'm not required to, um, to take COVID tests. But all of the educational staff at Perkins have to take a home-based test every day before they come to work. And, you know, my colleague has mastered the process and, you know, trial and error because she didn't have an Illum test. I think we had eye health and Q health, which are a couple versions. And she's just figured out different steps in her process. Um, and then she gets be my eyes or Ira to read the results before she goes to work. So you know, she doesn't know exactly what she's doing, but she knows exactly what to do to make the results come out in the in the process. So I think you're absolutely right that the familiarity with the the pieces of the test and what you do with all those pieces really is the part that's going to make it really doable for people, you know, who have never done it before independently. Thank you. Uh Dr. Hemsker, what did you think about Kim's description? Very, very interesting. And I certainly will share um, your email with, um, I'll do an email introduction with Brian, who I think you've already been talking with, Brian Walsh. Mm -hmm. Um, They they would love to get this feedback because Illum is one of the tests um, in our program now. what I thought about it was that it sounds like the setup will take longer than the actual test itself. That, that was true. <laughs> Getting all but, the data fields filled in was <laughs> did take longer than the 15 yeah. minutes to uh, take the test. But so I think you're, you're right, right that once you have the app, 
doing it again will be streamlined relatively. Yeah. It'll be interesting to learn if all that information defaults in the next time, or if you have to approve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully you don't have to approve every time. I I think it stays. So it'll probably go right to the, you know, to the, the, the critical information because it knows who I, who I am now. So. Very good. I'm going to turn it over to Clark Arakful. Sure. Thank you so much, Dan. And Kim, thanks for that uh, very detailed overview. Anyone guess that Kim's a librarian? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that was very thorough. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Heemsker, we've talked a lot about where, I guess, where COVID testing is is heading here over the next few months uh, and into the future to make it accessible. But I guess, I'll ask you to opine on what this work means for the rest of at-home testing um, and, you know, at-home medical diagnostics. I think it's been one of the great, um, I guess, silver linings of COVID that, it propelled the home diagnostics industry forward. And as I said, our um, existing network that was built to develop home diagnostics has been in place since 2007. And actually getting a test to market has been an extraordinarily slow process without clear pathways defined through the FDA, for example. Um, And all of this activity um, done in very close collaboration between the developers and the FDA and the other government agencies um, has set up kind of an ecosystem where communication flows very freely. It's very collaborative. There's an opportunity now to maintain these these new pathways long-term so that other kinds of tests can benefit from all the learnings that have happened at NIH and at the companies and at the FDA. Um, It's it's going to be a a different thing um, with, instead of emergency use authorization, going to real FDA approval, which will have to happen with tests for diseases that are not in the public emergency category. Um, And because the FDA is considering transitioning um, out of the emergency status for COVID, um, you know, they're doing their long-term planning for that now. We're trying to set up sort of analogous processes that can help companies and establish pathways through that somewhat more elaborate process to get full FDA approval. But I think that just that we have gone from a place to having very limited laboratory testing in the country to having plentiful home tests um, has been, has been just transformative for the diagnostics industry. And I really hope that, that momentum can carries us forward and and gets elaborated into lots of different tests. I mean, imagine all the tests 
wouldn't it be great to just have a test? I woke up with a sore throat. I'm going to take a test. I woke up with, I don't know. I'm wondering about my, my vitamin D level. I'm wondering about my glucose level. I, I don't want to go into the doctor. I just want to know, call my doctor and tell him this is the or her. This is the situation. What do you suggest? Um, and that's sort of the, that's the wave of the future that Bruce Tromberg envisions is a more fluid relationship between health monitoring on the part of the patient and the healthcare provider so that it's not once a year you find out a whole bunch of stuff about yourself and then nothing again until your snapshot a year later, there's a continuous monitoring of your health and that will lend itself to a more preventive kind of situation where the, the problems that pop up in a yearly exam can be avoided if they're caught earlier and you don't get into that dire situation where you need um, extreme measures. You're, we, we could all be living in, in Bruce's vision. We could all be living in a much more kind of monitored way so that um, we, we extend our, not only our longevity, but our, what he calls our health span, which is the time that we, the time during our lives when we, we feel fully functional. Um, so I think, you know, this, this before COVID, this was a kind of pie in the sky vision. And now seeing this transformation with COVID healthcare gives one hope that we may have accelerated that process quite significantly just by going through this pandemic. That's great. Thank you. And I'm glad that you mentioned uh, checking blood sugar levels. Uh, certainly that's very important to ACB members and folks who have diabetes or mm-hmm. diabetes related vision loss, the leading cause of blindness for adults in the United States. Uh, another area for potential uh, promise for greater accessibility, home pregnancy tests, um, something we've heard about from our members as well. Thank you so much. It was so informative and we really, really appreciate all of your efforts on, on behalf of the American Council of the Blind. Thank you so, so much. And we look forward to continuing to have this productive collaborative partnership between NIBIB and the RADx program. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. A quick update since this conversation was held just last week. The Department of Health and Human Services and the federal government have announced that individuals who would like to order these more accessible tests may order now 12 tests at a time. Initially, they were only offering two tests at a time. They've increased that to 12. So we will include the link to do so in the podcast liner notes, and the information is also available on the ACB website at acb.org. If you would like to share your experiences with inaccessible healthcare, or in particular, using these more accessible tests by Illum, E-L-L-U-M-E, please send us an email at advocacy at acb.org, and we will continue our work in this important area 
and we know you all as well. So keep advocating. This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. 